0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight and analysis into all the topics you're talking about in football. I mean, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. Duncan, we're going to start today with some news on the Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who has broken another set of unwanted records with the 2-2 draw at home to Aston Villa last weekend. We understand that Solskjaer's future will be discussed between Ed Woodward, the executive vice chairman, and the owners of the club, the Glazer family, in the next 24 hours. There's no uh, reason to believe right now that he will be sacked Imminently, That's not the information, however, it shows you just how bad the form has been and indeed the concern there is at executive level for Solskjaer's performance in the job that they find themselves once again having to have this conversation regarding should we have a plan B and if so, will it be Murcio Pochettino or do we stick with him, Duncan? What was your take on uh, both the result and also uh, the notion that Solskjaer might might be running out of his 9 or 18 or 27 lives?
1: I think that the performance against Aston Villa was um, slightly better from attacking perspective, but um, only really slightly better. And, and the first half in particular was another example of Manchester United basically being um, out-thought and outfought at home against a team that in normal circumstances I know Villa have had a decent start to their their return to the Premier League but promoted sides and sides who you would expect are expecting to be fighting against relegation this season are coming to Old Trafford and looking the better team for significant parts of the game and you know that that's it really isn't a surprise anymore because of what we've seen under Uly Gunnar Solskjaer's management. Um, that defeat takes his um, win rate as permanent manager in Premier League games, the 22 Premier League games, since he was uh, elevated from interim position to full-time manager to 27.3%, which is laughably poor for um, a manager of Manchester United. Remember a manager who had told... People, as results went south at the end of last season, that a transfer market in which he was allowed to make record spends on both a centre-back and a full-back deal with what most people would consider to have been the biggest issue in Manchester United's squad. And after a pre-season that he said would make a huge difference to the fitness of his players, uh, allow them to play a a higher-intensity game, be more attacking play on the front foot, solve a lot of the problems he was blaming for that run of poor results at the end of last season. He's had that. We see the results haven't changed. We see that the performances haven't particularly changed. Um, He's had a lot of injuries off the back of that new training regime, so you can question and people within the club are questioning the effectiveness of it, whether he's got that right or whether it's actually caused problems with that training regime rather than solved them. Um, and of course, now you have Maurizio Pochettino available. Um, there will be compensation if, if Manchester United decide to go for him because Tottenham have been smart and put him on gardening leave and not left him completely free uh, from a, a financial perspective to sign for other clubs. But he is available in the market looking for a new job. Um, we know that Ed Woodward uh, likes Pochettino and has done work earlier this season um, on the prospect of Pochettino coming to the club. The question, I think, is whether Pochettino is ready to do that now. Um, the guidance from people around him has been that he would prefer to take a sabbatical, prefer to wait until the summer, and also whether he's prepared to go for the Manchester United job over other opportunities that will inevitably present themselves um, over the coming months and uh and during the summer because he is now regarded as as a as a premium managerial coaching candidate and top clubs will want to take him so eventually uh, an opportunity at a club that has less problems than Manchester United will come Mauricio Pochettino's way um i think that the 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 sequence of games coming up is important um manchester united play tottenham at home on wednesday night which obviously is Josie Mourinho re- returning to Old Trafford uh, on a reasonable run of form with Tottenham. Uh, they're definitely defensively fragile. We're seeing that in every game they play still, but they're scoring goals um, and the players are looking a lot happier and they have uh, alternative strategic solutions from the way they were playing under Pochettino. And, um, and that's not an inviting match for Solskjaer Um, and you can envisage and I I imagine that people at Old Trafford in the hierarchy are wondering uh, what happens if they lose at home to Mourinho on his return uh, to Old Trafford and then they follow that up on Saturday uh, with a game at Manchester City which obviously despite City's problems is going to be another extremely difficult looking match for them. Um, there's an interesting statistic in that for Sol Char, Um if he fails to win all three of his, of his next three Premier League fixtures and the one after that is Everton under a great deal of pressure themselves he will have failed to match the points total Mourinho accumulated as Manchester United manager last season after his first 17 games of that season and, and was sacked for so he needs nine points out of nine against Tottenham, City and Everton, um, something he has not achieved at any point during his permanent managership of Manchester United just to equal the mark that resulted in Mourinho being sacked last December. And the reason I say this fixture list is important, if you go back and look at the, the fixture list that faced Solskjaer when he was brought in as interim manager, there was very much a case of uh, the board taking the opportunity of having lost at Liverpool in a in a what was a game which obviously focuses the attention of the Manchester United fans and their disgruntlement with results sacking Mourinho at very short notice something that caught. Um, most people by surprise, including the manager himself, and installing Solskjaer with a a relatively easy, in fact, by Premier League standards, a very easy run of fixtures in which he had a good opportunity to mount a turnaround in results and performances, which, of course, he did with that record-breaking start to his managerial career. But you can see that given they have track record in this uh this domain of getting rid of managers after difficult games and putting them in when they have the opportunity to um, present a turnaround in form, that this is a very dangerous period for Solskjaer. Um, OK, the club, the board has consistently defended their appointment of Solskjaer and they're talking about this long-term process. We have uh, Ed Woodward um, in an interview with the United We Stand fanzine explaining that the the transfer rebuild process is going to take multiple windows. He used the phrase, it's a multi-year squad evolution analysis, which is something I've never heard in football before. But I guess what he's trying to say is, uh, don't judge us on where we are this season. We need a lot more time to fix this. Finding those X-factor players is difficult, Duncan, as we discussed, you know, Chavi. (laughs) <laughs> Granit Jacka <laughs> Granit Jacka might not be too hard to find at the moment if he's no, part indeed. of the uh, the multi-year squad evolution analysis but the point i'm trying to make is that although the words from Old Trafford uh, the words uh, the briefings in the background as well as those on record words from Woodward have been extremely supportive of Solskjaer they've got the buy-in of multiple prominent pundits um, such as our friend Gary Neville to, to to repeatedly say that Solskjaer needs this three to four transfer windows before he can be properly judged. So they've sold that story to prominent figures in the media and, it, and it's been um, a part of the, the discussion and, and you know a lot of Manchester United fans are going down that route. I don't think you can trust um, Woodward and the Glazers in this domain. Uh, they've been expedient in the past and um, and really, they have every justification from a football perspective, from a performance perspective, and certainly from a results perspective to change manager now, if they can get a man like Pochettino in, who I've no doubt that Pochettino, even at the worst of his performance as a coach, would improve on matters over what Solskjaer's delivering Manchester United at the moment.
0: So... Let's just say, Duncan, uh, and we should also mention, of course, that um, resting s- his entire senior squad almost uh, for the game in Astana uh, last Thursday night, not one player who started against Villa had travelled, didn't seem to have any effect particularly
1: on the lackadaisical performance. Not just resting his entire senior squad, Ian, he rested his assistant coaches for that game.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and, and, and you know what? Seasons that Man, Manchester United reporters, uh, people who I've got respect for, including David McDonnell of The, the Mirror, um, pointed this out and said they don't even have that excuse for the pathetic performance that they put up against the newly promoted Arsenal Villa because every uh, one of the 11 who started had had a whole week, a, a whole week of not playing, just training as normal, etc., etc., and not making that long journey. I guess the thing about Pochettino-Duncan, um, Manchester United is almost becoming an impossible job. Everyone used to say that was the England job. But Manchester United, in terms of the governance, the, the way the club is run from top to bottom, etc., etc., and uh, the interference it has to be said, especially under Jose Mourinho of the Glazer family and Woodward with regards to signings and then blocking signings. Um, Saul Sharwin was more malleable to that because, of course, he doesn't have the managerial pedigree of Mourinho, uh, therefore doesn't feel he has the uh, kudos nor um, respect or even just the experience to question the club with regards to recruitment policy. I mean, do we seriously think someone of Pochettino's calibre, of his um, mindset, intelligence, his very, very, clever procurement of his own career so far, would take the risk on of managing Manchester United in the state, but also, should they lose the next two games, entirely plausible, against Tottenham and then Manchester City, they would probably be, or possibly be, four or five points off relegation. Never mind the ambitions of the club, stated in their financial report of making Champions League.
1: You cannot underestimate the attraction of Manchester United as a football club. It remains one of the biggest clubs in football from the point of view of support, status, um, and also finances. Um, please don't many... say social media. Just don't say social media, Reach. <laughs> I'll leave, I'll leave that to Richard Ed. Arnold and Edward Woodward. <laughs> um, and, you you look at the history and also look at the current situation. So I know Max Legri is very interested in a Manchester United job and sees it as one of the potential big fish appointments that that he's looking to take, even though a big part of his analysis is I need a club where I have the opportunity to win national titles and have the opportunity to compete in the Champions League. And you know, he's, it's clear that Manchester United it's going to take a while. To get them to that level, even if you're a coach of, of Allegri's caliber, because you have to surpass Liverpool, you have to surpass Manchester City, and you have to get past numerous intermediate clubs at present. From the other, on the other hand, all of these coaches will be looking at what Solskjaer is doing and knowing they can do better with, even with the the tools that are available from a squad level. Um, the risk absolutely it's there and, and the, these guys uh, have got to take that into consideration. But my experience of, of talking to out-of-work football managers or football managers who are looking for um, the next step up is quite interesting that sometimes they will be drawn in by the name of the club um, and they won't have that degree of information about just how difficult things are behind the scenes. And, and it's only when they get in situ sometimes that they realize that. And, and you know, you don't really want to talk about the previous manager of Manchester United here, but that's what happened to him. He his perspective was that Manchester United was a great opportunity in English football that with those resources in place he could win the Premier League title and he could go head to head with Guardiola and beat him. Then he got into the club and found out how dysfunctional it was so someone like Mourinho doesn't do the homework properly and clearly in this case he didn't because had he asked around he would have found out at least something and a good degree of how problematic the organisation of Manchester United was. If he's not doing that and and he's a man who's, you know, notorious for doing uh, homework in kind of all areas of of football management, you can see why others won't do that. And, you know, Pochettino will have that thinking there. It's this is the biggest club. If I take that job, that'll be the biggest club I've ever been at. I'm at one of the, the powers of world football. If I can get in and, you know, the, the the chief executive of the club has been talking about hiring a director of football. So if he wants to hire me, maybe I can ensure that I come with my choice of recruitment specialist and give myself an even better opportunity and platform to, to work from. You also have the perspective of um, it's so bad at the moment and United have been selling this story of it's going to be a long-term rebuild. Uh, we need multiple transfer windows to fix things. That, that's actually quite enticing for a, for a, a manager coming in because he, he will know he has time to work and time to improve things because it's the stated aim of the club. And they sack another manager having said the things they've said about that manager and talked about, you know, the, 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 the reboot, the cultural reboot and switching to younger players. And they really desperately need this next appointment to work. So again, that's, that's extra insurance and padding and, and time to solve things. So I guess from that perspective, it becomes a more interesting opportunity for Pochettino if his decision is I remain in England. And, uh, and go to a top club in England rather than moving to Spain or to Italy um, where he is a, he's actually a Juventus supporter and, and has a, a standing interest in, in coaching Juventus at some point. Um, so he could potentially wait and see whether um, Agnelli grows tired of Sari. And, and sacks him at the end of the season and, and goes for a placement coach. And we know Guardiola is the, is the premier choice for Agnelli and Juventus. Um, but they would have to actually secure Guardiola. Um, if they don't, then they'll need someone else. And, and then Pochettino will be thinking that's an opportunity. And you, um, and, and, you know, a serious opportunity to go to different league with a squad where you can expect to win the title and expect to be competitive for the Champions League. So it's it's interesting, the decision-making process that goes through this, but there's no doubt that Pochettino's dismissal or, or Pochettino being relieved of his duties at Tottenham and Unai Emery being sacked by Arsenal has ramped up the pressure on Solskjaer and, uh, and he's reaching a point where he badly needs good results. Um, otherwise, I think this is going to become untenable for him.
0: I mentioned um, England as the impossible job. And of course, since Sir Bobby Robson left that role um, after Italia 90, no manager has managed England and has seen his stock rise after he left the England job. That's been the same, Duncan, for all of the managers since Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. And... That's why I think I was insinuating that perhaps the poison chalice that every good coach thinks they can accept and turn it into uh, a cup of gold um, is not necessarily always the case. Um, We should mention at this point the um, comments of one of United's most famous players, Duncan, the great Paul Scholes, um, who chose not to criticise Lugano Solskjaer for his 2-2 draw with newly promoted Aston Villa, but did criticise Fiddy Lundberg in the most bizarre circumstances in his first game, a Solsha, Solskjaer, club legend, comes in, gets the bounce effect, blah, blah, blah.
1: What did he say? So, Paul Scholes, on his. Uh regular job for commenting on Premier League TV um, which he is often very forthright in his opinions about everyone apart it seems from uh, the precious one Uli Gunnar Solskjaer um, his comment on Lundberg was you would think he'd be out in a suit to show a bit of proudness that he took the job to me that's a great start shirt and tie to show some discipline I don't think he'll be the right man so um yeah interesting contrast and. In, in the patience that's been shown with Solskjaer, um, almost 12 months now and not a word of criticism of anything he's done. And Lundberg damned for not wearing a, a shirt and tie. Um, after 90 uh, minutes. After 90 <laughs> minutes. And, and, um, I, and I believe if you were to search back to um, Scholes' uh, impressive uh, full-time managerial career at Oldham Athletic, I believe in his first game, um, you'll find him without a tie uh, wearing a a, a shirt um, covered by a, a, a zip-up jersey. So maybe Scholes has reflected on what happened to him at Oldham and decided that it, his big error um, resulting in all those defeats was that he didn't wear a shirt and tie in a suit for the first match and he's trying to pass on that wisdom to, to Freddie Lindbergh.
0: If only Ollie had taken his advice and, and you know, I see Ollie in a suit often at Manchester United, but I don't see the results that back up that particular <laughs> opinion from Schools. So maybe, maybe Scholesy needs to tell Ollie to um, to dress down, do dress down Saturday, Sunday, mate. You know, put on your open uh, neck shirt and your jumper, and uh, maybe you get results like Pepin and Yergie. Interesting interview with uh, the son of Stan Kroenke, Duncan, regarding the situation at Arsenal. Uh, how the sacking of Unai Emery came about and also what they're looking for going forward. Um, seems to me to be just a little bit of, um, I don't know, uh, can I say luddite After all, uh, Scores called it proudness instead of pride uh, with regards to the suit. So if I am indeed um, not doing a good job with the English language by saying luddite then uh, I hope I'll be forgiven. But at the same time, um, strange that Josh Cronker should come out and. Uh, say that they were considering sacking Emery for a few weeks rather than when they did sack him, which, of course, was last week?
1: Yes. um, It was an interview where he was trying to, obviously, defuse the situation and reassure Arsenal fans about um, the direction of the club and that they were going to come up with a good solution and he said that yes we, uh, we decided to. it was time to make a change and ultimately we came to that decision on the, over the last several weeks as a group between myself uh, Raul Vinay and Edu, who are the um, the head of football, the head of uh, the uh, general commercial direction of the club, and the technical director at the club, but confirming um, interestingly our stories, which we've been running for some time in the podcast, that Arsenal had severe doubts about Emery and had begun looking for replacements for him. I think what was even more worrying. Um, for Arsenal supporters is that you have Josh Cronkey, a 39-year-old um, American who has become a more and more prominent figure in the direction um, and stewardship of the club, talking about uh, his message to Lundberg. I mean, they, he said in this interview that they, he felt um, Lundberg knew the club DNA um, which I, I think is a, a dangerous phrase to be using, given Solskjaer's great knowledge of the club DNA at Manchester United and what's happened there, um, and that they had faith in him at, on an interim basis, at the very least, while to keep Arsenal um, performing on the pitch while they found the right replacement for Emery. But apparently his message to Freddie and the players was, let's get back to basics, And most importantly, let's get back to having some fun. I think footballers are at their best when I see smiles on their faces and going out there and winning matches. That's a winning formula to me. Um, Why Josh Gronke thinks it's a good idea to um, be passing on his sort of, you have to say, pretty naive views on on how you solve uh, the quite substantial problems that Arsenal have been facing this season, which is go out and have fun and, um, and play with a smile on your face. Why Look, Why you think that's interestingly, idea? Interestingly, Lundberg
0: repeated that phrase in an interview with Sky, uh, which was um, broadcast on Saturday morning. He actually said as well, he said, I, I need to put a smile back in the faces of the players because they've not been enjoying their football. So clearly, Kronka's message has got through to him.
1: Which you'd expect to happen, given that Kronka will be the ultimate... Um, determiner of whether Lundberg gets that job on a long-term basis. And, and you know, that's, I think that's the issue Arsenal have. We talked about this on the Friday podcast, the similarities between Manchester United and Arsenal in this American ownership, um, who are primarily interested in, in financial gain from their ownership of the club, don't really understand the sport, don't really understand the Premier League um, and the departures of charismatic... Um, all controlling, all powerful managers in Ferguson and Arsene Wenger uh, and the difficulties those clubs are having, um, resolving that, that massive change to the identity and structure and functioning of the club. I think that the, the, the fear here is that someone like Cronkie, who does not have the depth of knowledge of football, has that degree of influence over this. Critical appointment for the club, and then you have someone like Bloomberg um, repeating what the the boss or the boss's son has told him um, is the winning formula uh, in a in an interview on television. Because um, that's what you do when when that level of person has control over your future. It's understandable for Bloomberg to go down that line, but um, not a great sign for the club.
0: So, are we saying that?
1: Um in order to get
0: results the only thing clubs need to do according to their owners is get someone like Kevin Bridges in the dressing room before the game do a few gags have them laugh a bit next thing you know they're 5-0 up
1: well let's get back to basics and most importantly (laughs) let's get back to having some fun look we both know Ian that football from a professional point of view is not primarily about having fun there are plenty of professional footballers who will admit to you that they do not enjoy football, that the part of football that's being on the pitch and they do not particularly enjoy training. It's a job and it's a very high pressure job and it's one in which the demands on players is far greater than it's ever been from a, a physical perspective in terms of the intensity of running. Um, and that the, the, physical level you have to be just to be able to compete on a football pitch these days and show your, your technical quality in terms of the technical quality that's required to, to beat opponents. Um, and in terms of the pressure and the, you know, the, because it is now big business, uh, the financial pressure, but also the psychological pressure, the exposure of being a, top level professional football, the kind of, um, aggression you can receive when things go wrong on, on social media for, and, and to be fair and, and traditional media when you're not performing. It, it's not, it's not Sunday league football. It, it's a hard profession that puts a lot of pre- pressure on its, um, proponents and, and yes the psychological side of football is crucial and top coaches will tell you that a lot of getting performances from players is getting them in the right frame of mind to believe they can deliver performances and they can take risks calculated risks on the field and be audacious and and beat opponents but that's not it's fun when it works but the, the, the basic parts aren't fun and getting back to basics and playing with a smile on your face isn't a credible solution to um, to winning in the Premier League. Well, it's
0: interesting as well, Duncan, that um, Aubameyang looked almost dejected when he scored equaliser for Arsenal. Um, he didn't celebrate. He was almost embarrassed, you know, that I can't celebrate a 2-2 draw. I, I just can't because you know, the manager's lost his job, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole put smells on their faces thing, you know, falls apart in that one moment for Arsenal, as far as they're concerned. Um, and yet you see, you, well, sorry, contrast that with Leicester City, who get the 94 plus whatever, 30 seconds winner, um, which is then reviewed by VAR, uh, but then given, and then they celebrate twice, Uh Ian Nacho has a massive power slide towards his manager. Now, those are actual, you know, they are, they are proper smiles. They are authentic players playing for their club, for the win, in the very last minute of added time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you've got an Arsenal team who are clearly dejected, depressed and look, you know, almost beaten, without even half the season gone. And so this idea that, oh yeah, let's get them playing with a smile on their face is just ludicrous.
1: Yeah, I think Josh cronkey has got the arrow of causation wrong there. It's the the smiles come from the victories, not the victories from the smiles. Absolutely correct. Um, no news as yet as to who might be
0: the permanent manager um, of Arsenal. Uh, suggestions, Duncan, seem to be that Lundberg will be given enough time well, they make a decision um, at board level, but at the same time, um, a bit like Solsha, if he makes a, a positive impression over the course of the next few weeks and months, he may even see the season out as interim manager if they can't recruit a permanent boss whom they see as someone who can take the club forward. Because clearly, having made one mistake with Unai Emory, they don't want to make another. And again, you know, and we don't apologize for the analogy, but they are falling into the trap that Manchester United fell into when Ferguson left in 2013, where they've gone through um, several managers since then uh, who have spent, you know, a fairly enormous amount of money, but not brought the necessary success back to the club. Arsenal are in an even more detrimental situation in terms of trophies because they you know, obviously, it's been a long time since they've been serious contenders for the Premier League title, uh, and certainly as, as Champions League as well. Um, they've done well in FA Cups, but that's you know something which the fans are not going to and won't tolerate. So do you, what do you think the chances, Duncan, of Lundberg seeing this season out? Or do you think the availability of Allegri and possibly one or two others might force Arsenal, not force, but turn Arsenal heads towards uh, um, appointing someone sooner rather than later
1: well certainly in the discussions that arsenal have had with representatives of some of the candidates uh, it's been made clear that they're ready to continue with Lundberg for um, a reasonable period as necessary which tells you that they're not going to these candidates and saying we need you to come in now Um, are you ready to do it Um, we told you in the podcast last week that they have an extensive list of criteria that they're looking at um, in terms of assessing who the best man for the job will be. That criteria has been in place for many weeks now. And that uh, the head of football, and yeah, he's been working um, on sounding individuals out and assessing um, alternatives for Emery on the basis that they they felt um they might have to change because it wasn't working. And you have Josh Cronkey's words backing up the 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 um the, the length of consideration and the and the, the time that this has been in motion. Um, there does seem to be guidance coming from Arsenal that they'd like to avoid paying compensation for the next manager, um, which obviously makes it harder for them to go for someone like uh, Nuno Espirito Santo at Wolves, who there is an interest in, um, because you are looking at a complicated process of getting him out of Wolves and their Chinese ownership, and it would not come cheap. So um, the sense is that, uh, that they don't have a clear answer on this at present. And it's obvious that, you know, given that they've been working on this for several weeks and considering and doing the groundwork with various candidates that they hadn't come to a decision um, that this is our man and we are going to have him in place as uh, as Tottenham did, for example. And as is generally the case um, in Premier League clubs these days, um, the, the, the preferred route is to have your replacement lined up, sack and install your new man. Immediately, so he can be on the training ground, and you um, you get your new manager bounce as quickly as possible. But also, the the, the new man is is ready and prepared to to step in. And clearly, Arsenal have not gone down that route, um, but decided that they had to get rid of Emery, um, and they have this uh, they have faith in Lumberg, and uh, and they have a sense that they could get away with extending their deliberations over permanent appointment because Lundberg would be able to do a good job for them. Um, we'll see over the next few games whether that's the case or not, um, whether he is capable of getting points because again, they are talking and they're saying that they um, they still believe they can achieve their targets for the season and the principal target for the season was to qualify for next season's Champions League. So in the Premier League, they can't get away with too many more weeks of um, of poor uh, point performance, um, and if their their ultimate goal is to get in the Champions League the next season, which they which they they have been very clear it is, that would reduce them to depend being totally dependent on the Europa League again as an access route into. European's top club competition and the money that it affords a club.
0: Well, this is Monday's Transfer Window Podcast. And of course, we're into the month of December, which means only 29 days to go, people, until that window opens and your club will hopefully be looking to improve your squad. For the moment, however, it is the managerial Merry go round, which of course is not subject to any windows being open and closed, depending if you're going to throw someone out of it, of course, um, managers that is. Um, and we go now to Watford, who of course sacked Kiki Sanchez Flores after his second and much uh, shortened second spell in charge. Um, leading us to ask the question Duncan, is a manager not just before Christmas or something like that? <laughs> 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 Give them now sack two before Christmas. I should say, should point out. Should we be going down to the, um, the the Battersea managers' homes to look for a rescue manager to take over?
1: <laughs> well, that that um, is very much the 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 guidance I'm getting, and where Watford have, have placed himself. Um, well, so it's got
0: to be a rescue manager when they're bottom of the table.
1: Exactly, and 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 the problem is that they don't have one yet um so Watford just been talking about clubs preparing the way for for these changes of management Watford have been very good at that in the past and and let's face it they've um they've gone through managers at an incredible rate i think 11 appointments since um Sean Dyche left the club um and that's in from 2012 so they are practised in that art um i my understanding is that they've been thinking about um dismissing Kiki Sanchez-Flores for um, a couple of weeks now and that he would have gone um, had he not won at Norwich um, on the 8th of November so uh, more than a couple of weeks then it was ahead of that game that a decision had been made that they were ready to dismiss if he hadn't got a result in that match Um, they have been working to get a replacement in but they're kind of hamstrung again in that they, they, they don't they don't want to commit to a manager who, for example, your friend, uh, your good friend, Sam Allardyce, who will come in and demand um, a lot of work in the transfer market and his type of players. Um, So new signings in January, heavy expense on wages um, and possibly transfer fees to do that kind of rescue work that Sam Allardyce has been very accomplished at in the Premier League in past years because Watford's model is about controlling transfers um and making money via those transfers uh, and and staying in the Premier League so they don't want to sacrifice and hand over control to um a a short-term rescue manager and especially one who if he does Uh, succeed in keeping them up there would be pressure on retaining him uh, and then going through a summer window where they have a fight with that man over who their recruitment should be uh, and the reshaping of the squad. Um, I'm told that uh, they were only intending to have Hayden Mullins in charge of training today, Monday, and had hoped to have a replacement in um, for their next match against Leicester. Uh, earlier today, they formally announced that Mullins would be in charge for that match. So that tells you that an attempt to appoint um, an interim manager replacement for Kiki Sanchez-Flores has failed um, today. And um, I, I talking to an agent um, earlier about the situation. He said, actually, they, they placed themselves in a situation which is quite hard for them to get a quality manager because they have this track record of, of sacking individuals. They have this track record of, um, controlling the transfer market, uh, to suit themselves. They're now in a very difficult position in the league. So the person coming in is, knows he's going to be fighting against it to achieve the goal of, of remaining in the division. So the pool of individuals they can choose from, um, on, those and those kind of standards on uh, which they would have to work in is quite small.
0: I can see someone, um, I mean, Chris Houghton's a name who has been widely mentioned, Duncan. Um, I know Chris relatively well. He's very much someone who looks after reputation, uh, is a safety first kind of guy, risk averse both in terms of tactics and his career choices. So if indeed they were interested in Chris Hewton, then I could see Chris being a difficult negotiation based on everything you've just said with regard to the of family's ownership and the way they want to operate the club and everything else. Um, despite the fact that Chris, um, I think, would be a very good fit for Watford at this moment in time. Um, he saved Brighton uh, from relegation and then... Within two seasons got them uh, promoted to the Premier League. So, um, but I think you're right in saying that that's a negotiation, which would be one, um, which would re- require a long-term contract and not a short-term fix. Cause Chris Houghton is not the kind of guy who says, yeah, I'll be your, you know, red adair for eight months, six months, whatever it is. And then we can talk again in the summer. That's not going to work for him. Which I think is probably why we're seeing this vacillation. And as you said, the announcement that um, Hayden Mullins uh, wouldn't just be taking one training session, but indeed would be taking the team for a match on Wednesday night. <sighs> Odd, isn't it, that um, the training grounds of Watford and Arsenal um, literally are separated by a fence up in Hertfordshire Duncan. And uh, you could almost see them like putting uh, stepmothers up on each side and saying, Who are they getting? Who are we getting? Who are they getting? Who are you getting?
1: <laughs> well, I, I can tell you that um, Chris Hewton's agent um, Rob Segal was at Watford's training ground on Friday, um, which would suggest that the reports that they have an interest in Hewton are correct, and also it would suggest that they failed to do a deal um, to secure him. And I can understand why Hewton would want a long-term contract. He, he, you know, if you're if you're looking for a manager to keep you in the Premier League, um, his Percentage football, it's it's very considered, it's very safety first and the players at Brighton eventually tired of it. But he achieved what he was asked to achieve and he, he's done it before in the Premier League. So um, you can understand why he would say, no, I don't want to do it on an interim basis. I want a long-term contract to do it. Also got to say here um, that Kiki Sanchez-Flores and, and Watford have been damaged by our friend Valerie um, at the weekend. So the the game that did for Kiki Sanchez-Flores was won at Southampton, um, an absolute relegation six-pointer in which Watford were ahead until the 78th minute. Um, Southampton score twice in five minutes, but their first goal comes after a handball by Southampton's uh, Musa Gineppo, um, it's one of those handballs that probably was unintentional, but the Premier League has been crystal clear that any hand in the build-up to a goal has to be cancelled um, this season, and VAR failed to do so. So Watford went from a position where they would have, let's assume they were they, they'd held out and won that game, they would be on eleven points, three points off Everton, who face a very difficult round of fixtures from getting out of the relegation zone, they would have been two points ahead of Southampton, who would have been bottom of the division. And instead, they're bottom six points off safety and four points off Southampton because um, a system which, for VARs, uh, in VARs uh, context, this is the most straightforward of calls you get. The way the Premier League have interpreted that new handball law they have said any handball by an attacking player in the build up to a goal is a foul and cannot, you cannot have a goal. So that's the most objective of all decisions you can make. It, you being a VAR in football at present, they missed it and it cost a man his job and could possibly. In, in fact, you can say as things stand, it will probably cost Watford a place in the Premier League. And that is a multi, multi million pound mistake from VAR.
0: Now, Duncan, you know I'm not a betting man, obviously, but um, if I could get a bet on Mike Riley not admitting that that decision was wrong in the way that he admitted four decisions of the 29 overturned in the first 12 rounds of matches in the Premier League were wrong, because in doing so, he would admit that effectively, as you just said, Watford get relegated and it costs them their £198 million in TV revenue, etc., etc., then Watford could sue PGMOL for that wrong decision. So I'm not expecting any time soon to hear from Mike Riley that despite the obvious um, transgression of their own rules on VAR, that that one was patently wrong. And indeed, on the same day, a decision was given to disallow a goal for a similar handball.
1: Yeah, and look, we've seen this rule. You can argue that uh, it, it's had a major effect on the title race and that it, the first points lost by Manchester City were because of that handball rule, the Americ Laporte, completely unintentional, missed by everyone apart from the VAR handball that cost them two points against Tottenham and put them on the back foot in the title race. And, and you, Ian, have raised on this podcast several months ago the prospect of legal action um, res- coming from this decision that's been taken by introducing VAR that the referee's decision in the field is no longer final and that um, arbiters uh, external to the game will decide um, whether the rules were correctly applied. And I think you're absolutely right. Because of the nature of this one, it's not a subjective decision on the part of the VAR, it is a clear error. The rule is absolutely clear-cut in this case as the Premier League has applied it. Handball and the build-up to a goal cannot be a goal. Therefore, it is a clear mistake by VAR. There's no discussion about, oh, it was the VAR's interpretation that that wasn't a foul in that context. He just got it wrong. Therefore, you have the basis for a legal case there. It will happen, Duncan. I'm, I'm positive of it. Because once you
0: put what are decisions made by humans uh, and then have them governed by technology, which is not proven to be 100% correct, then you are placing yourself in the hands of the gods with regards to what the legal
1: implications of that could be. I understand that when Kiki Sanchez-Flores was asked about that decision, In the match, he wanted to avoid commenting on it in a kind of gentlemanly fashion and not complain about VAR. And a club official actually intervened to ensure that the club's position was that a mistake had been made in that game, which again uh, would aid with a legal case down the line. We will have a look.
0: Quick chat about Marco Silva's position at Everton, but regarding um, the vacancy at Watford and of course the potential vacancy at Everton, I just want to just throw in Duncan, because you know some decisions sometimes come out of left field, and I am being told by some contacts that there's a, a young up and coming coach called Samuel Alardiccio uh, <laughs> who is currently firing up his Vespa and traveling across Europe to make his representations to uh, said clubs with regards to his um, uh, ability to do those jobs. Now, everyone thinks Marco was a dead man walking. So joking aside, Duncan, um, you have information that perhaps, perhaps he has a chance of pulling himself out of the fire and back into the hearts of the Everton fans and, more importantly, the Everton board.
1: Well, Marco Silva, another man who uh, can feel aggrieved with VAR after the weekend and that one of those extremely marginal offside decisions, which we know that the VAR technology is not capable of giving accurately, turned a what would have been a very credible point at Leicester City, high-flying Leicester City, into um, a last-minute defeat. Just talking to someone close to Marco Silva and asking... What their view on his, um, his lifespan, remaining lifespan at Everton was, given that Everton have been looking to secure a new manager and given that Bill, Bill Kenwright is pushing very hard, um, for a change of manager and has proposed that David Moyes returns to the club. Um, and that Farhad Masiri, um, the, the front of the, the current ownership, um, has also been, um, considering seriously considering whether a mistake was made in, in appointing Marco Silva and whether they have to change, guidance I had was he will be there for the Merseyside Derby and if he can get a result in the Merseyside Derby that um, offers him an opportunity to reestablish himself and get through this difficult winter period um, it's a big ask but the feeling obviously in Marco Silva's camp is do something against Liverpool, particularly when Liverpool are miles ahead in the Premier League and, and it, it's their title to lose, as we like to say on the transfer window podcast. Trademark. And, and, um, and it could just change for him. So there's, there's, there's obviously a belief from Silva's side that their position in the league is deceptive, that, um, that results have gone against them that shouldn't have gone against them. And he feels, he can still turn it around with these players and still get results and, and survive longer in this job.
0: Well, uh, I suspect if Marco Silva manages to climb Mount Everest and get back down again in time for the game of wins tonight, then he's probably <laughs> got a chance uh, of beating Liverpool and uh, saving his job. We should also mention that um, Fad Mosheri the uh, uh, chairman and uh, representative of the sh- owners of Everton, is being sold Marco Hughes, indeed, of the Marcos, uh, as uh, the next manager at Goodison Park, which to me, Duncan, seems like the same retrograde step as David Moyes might be um, under Ken Wright's uh, opinion. But, you know, that's, I think, where we are right now is uh, we're looking at safe pairs of hands um, to avoid uh, losing uh, Premier League status now with regards to clubs. Um, and it's, it's an odd one isn't it Duncan I mean, I, we joke about Manchester United being six points above relegation uh, Everton are worse off than that Arsenal aren't that much better off and yet you know we have this situation where all looking for well not yet but in Everton's case permanent um, uh, head coaches uh, possibly with Solskjaer as well um, and yet nothing being on the horizon with regards to the obvious candidate.
1: I think, yeah, look, Everton are looking for a replacement. It's just the decision has to be taken to change and, and they have to get the right man because they've, they've made so, they've had so many goes at it under this ownership and they've spent money so badly, um, that it's a difficult job for anyone to take on. I'm not sure David Moyes is that bad an appointment in that situation, um, you know he is he is what he is, but he's a, an accomplished coach and he knows that club inside out. Um, and in terms of stabilising things and um, and building with a coherent structure, Moyes might not be too bad a route to go down. It's not going to be the kind of football that that this ownership wanted when they um, they started this process of changing the club. And I, I don't know if he. I certainly doubt that Moyes would be able to get them into the Champions League, which had been the, the aim of this ownership initially, but as an interim permanent appointment, if you like, as a as something to stabilize, I can see why Ken Wright is is pushing that. Mark Hughes, um, I don't think you have to look very hard as to why he would be proposed, as as we've told you on the podcast, Kia Girabchin is close with the hierarchy of Everton. And Kia eruption has um, placed Mark Hughes at various clubs in the Premier League in the past. Um, and therefore, uh, the idea that he's suggested Mark Hughes as, a again, a, a manager who knows the Premier League and can stabilise, is not at all surprising.
0: It's not, but um, those are the way things go in the Premier League when clubs are in trouble. Um, they will sometimes bend to historical achievement stroke tradition and basically employ someone who they believe can just keep them in the division until such time that they can then take some kind of steps forward regarding transfers, etc., and potentially, of course, replacing the very coach that they've had with safe hands, with someone much more exciting. This is Monday's transfer window podcast, so we're going to conclude it with our heroes and villains section. Um, I'm going to ask Duncan to name his villain, and I believe uh, from our discussion prior to recording, we might have a weak connection between the two. Duncan, villain of the week or villain of the last few days is?
1: I uh, villain of the week would be the officials at the Real Madrid Paris Saint Germain game. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen that. Um, An absolute pivotal moment where um, Thibaut Courtois takes down um, Mauro Icardi, um, the Paris Saint-Germain forward in the penalty area, conceding a penalty and is red carded by the Portuguese referee, Arturo Suarez-Gias. So uh, the opportunity for Paris Saint-Germain to equalise in that game and play against 10 men for the rest of it overturned. By the VAR? um, Because they managed to find a foul in the build-up, which was a a shove in the back, which the referee had seen and and, uh, waved play on after seeing it. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that Real Madrid are again the beneficiaries of VAR in the Champions League. We saw it earlier in the group stage when um, they scored a goal which looked to be offside which was given offside in the stadium which the VAR then decided to overrule the the, the linesman call um, when they were in serious trouble against Club Brugge uh, and looked like losing that game uh, we saw in knockout stages of the Champions League last season when Ajax uh, scored against them in a game um, which people had expected Real Madrid to proceed from that, uh, that VAR somehow managed to find a a foul in the build-up to cancel that Ajax goal. Um, Had these two decisions in this season's Champions League gone against Madrid, then it's not hard to see Club Brugge going into that final game with the opportunity to knock Madrid out of the tournament, um, which would not go down well with the tournament organisers. Real Madrid are a massive pool. Um, It is good for... Uh, TV exposure to have them continuing the competition for as long as possible. I'm not saying that UEFA are pressuring VARs and officials to make decisions on their behalf. You can find other people who have talked about the pressure from UEFA to keep major clubs in the tournaments in the past. Um, But I think It just highlights a problem we have with VAR. We know referees are biased towards home sides. We know referees are biased towards bigger sides. These are well-demonstrated effects in football. When you give referees and officials a second opportunity to come down on the side of the big teams, they will, on average, do so. And we're seeing it in the Champions League with Madrid and they're getting away with... Um, decisions that would cost them games um, like that decision um, to keep Thibault Courtois on the field uh, in last midweek
0: One of my favourite discussions or or I guess um, terms of discussion Duncan, with professional footballers over the years um, has been when they've lost a game on a slightly controversial decision or a rule, and I'm talking about before VAR now and uh the um the phrase was always the referee was a hamer. <laughs> and by that they meant he was in favor of the big club, um, whether they're home or not. Um, but I always thought to myself, well, you know, dough was my uh response to that always in uh, reference <laughs> to the great cartoon. Uh my um my hero, well, there is a there is a there is definite connection here, Duncan. Um because um, I'm sure our listeners will remember when I declared Bobby Firmino's armpit my hero, becoming the first armpit to be ruled offside in the history of the game in a previous match in this season. Not quite an armpit, but Jack Grealish's calf was offside. But my, my hero's not uh, the young Englishman's calf. It is Darren Cann. The assistant referee, or linesman, as they were once called, on the far side of that pitch, who put his flag up straight away ahead of what turned out to be a, a disallowed goal. Um, the referee let the play go on, um, and Villa scored from said move. Uh, Grilish it was, in fact, to put the ball in the net. But Grealish, was that when it, on review, Darren Cann's original decision was absolutely spot on, showing us yet again sometimes humans are better than technology. And I salute you, Darren Cam. Brilliant, brilliant call. And another reason why I think we need to put our trust back into the officials on the field of play. This has been the Transfer Windows Monday podcast. We have enjoyed your company as always. If you want to continue the debate, as we know you do, Please get in touch via at transfer podcast on Twitter, Um, the same at transfer podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We welcome your comments there too. And of course, individually with at Duncan Castles and me at Garbo SJ. Usual rules apply on iTunes. Love it, like it. Five star review, everyone's happy. Uh, That's for now and Monday. But of course, we'll invite you to put in your questions. For Wednesday's Your Questions Answered podcast, please do that. Lots to talk about, obviously, with regards to um, what's been going on in the managerial merry-go-round, what's going to be coming up in the transfer window in January. But, of course, we also have a full and unusual midweek Premier League fixture calendar, which will be shown live every single game, historically for the first time, on an unmentioned channel you can work that one out for yourself if you've subscribed to it well done you if not then i'm sure there are other feeds available duncan thank you for your um uh contributions today and uh we shall see you all through the transfer window on wednesday thanks for listening